Welcome to Current Radio's Politics Station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. So, Abby, let's dive into this situation in Nicaragua. It appears that the Ortega-Murillo regime is using judicial persecution to punish public officials investigating corruption. That's right, Michael. According to a report by the Center for Transdisciplinary Studies of Central America, the penal system is being used as a political instrument. It's a bleak situation. And it's not just a few isolated cases. We're talking about a systematic dismantling of opposition groups, silencing the voices of the Catholic Church, and eliminating thousands of civil organizations. Exactly. It's a calculated effort to consolidate control over public institutions. And the way they're doing it is through laws approved between 2020 and 2021. One of these laws, the Law for the Regulation of Foreign Agents, basically declares all civil society organizations and individuals as agents serving foreign sources. It's an attempt to control who's allowed to influence Nicaragua's internal and external affairs. And it doesn't stop there. There's also the special law on cybercrimes that imposes censorship on independent media and social network users. It's described as an axe against freedom of expression. And then there's the law for the defense of the people's rights to independence, sovereignty, and self-determination. It essentially brands anyone as a traitor to the homeland for inciting foreign intervention, applauding sanctions, or obtaining foreign financing. That's right, Michael. And let's not forget the law of reform and addition to the criminal procedural code. It allows the judicial authority to imprison someone for up to 90 days while they investigate the detainee. It's a clear case of the judicialization of politics. It started with the siege of the organized political opposition, continued with religious harassment, and is now reaching the level of persecution of higher education. And the impact has been devastating. The regime has ordered the closure of some 3,000 non-governmental organizations and dozens of universities. This all comes in the wake of the 2018 protests, which resulted in about 300 deaths. It's a sobering reminder of the importance of free speech and a fair, independent judicial system. Indeed, Michael. And it underscores the need for the international community to keep a close eye on the situation in Nicaragua. From the sobering situation in Nicaragua, we now turn our attention to another hotspot of international politics. This time, we're focusing on the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict and a recent proposal from an unexpected quarter. Let's dive into this intriguing development. Let's dive into a recent development in international politics, Abby. Russian President Vladimir Putin has called for a political solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, suggesting that the BRICS group could play a significant role in reaching a settlement. Indeed, Michael. For our listeners, the BRICS group consists of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and recently expanded to include Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, and the United Arab Emirates. Right. Putin's comments are particularly interesting given his criticism of U.S. diplomacy in the region. He has attributed the Middle East crisis to the failure of U.S. diplomacy. What's your take on this, Abby? Well, Michael, it's not surprising. Putin has been known to use international issues to his geopolitical advantage. By blaming the U.S., he's clearly trying to position Russia and the BRICS group as potential mediators in the conflict. But what's interesting is that he hasn't elaborated on how such an effort might be organized. That's a good point, Abby. 
It's one thing to suggest a solution, but quite another to implement it, especially when it involves a complex and long-standing issue such as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Absolutely, Michael. And let's not forget Putin's comments about the situation in Gaza. He's cautioned Israel against laying siege to Gaza, comparing it to Nazi Germany's siege of Leningrad during World War II. That's a strong statement. Indeed, Abby. It's clear that Putin is deeply concerned about the situation. He even described it as terrible that Palestinian children were dying in large numbers. But the question remains, how can the BRICS group contribute to a solution? That's the million-dollar question, Michael. Only time will tell. But it's clear that Putin is pushing for a new world order to counter U.S. dominance, and this could be a part of his strategy. As we continue our coverage of the Middle East, we'll now shift our focus from the international perspective to the internal dynamics. From the role of the BRICS group in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, let's turn our attention to the seismic changes unfolding within Israeli politics itself. It's not just about who's leading, but a profound transformation in the political landscape. Stay tuned as we delve into the aftermath of what can only be described as a political earthquake. We're currently seeing a significant shift in Israeli politics, Abby. It's not just a matter of who's in charge, but a deeper change in the political landscape. Indeed, Michael. It's like we're witnessing the aftermath of a political earthquake. The left may form a government without Benjamin Netanyahu, while the right grapples with the fallout. And it's not just a simple left-right divide. The left has been dwindling since the Al-Aqsa Intifada back in 2000. It's almost like the classic Israeli left-wing camp doesn't exist anymore. That's a strong statement, Michael. But it does seem like the left has been more of a figment of the right's imagination in recent years. Exactly, Abby. The left has mostly been serving as a foil to Netanyahu. And it's not just about Netanyahu, but also about many of the ministers he appointed. Many have been revealed as empty vessels when put to the test. I get it. But even with all this, the left still wields considerable influence, right? Yes, it does. And it's not just about what the left wants Israel to be, but about what they believe it should not have become. More nationalist, more religious, more Middle Eastern. And more opportunistic and corrupt. It's a lot to take in. But let's not forget about the right. There's also a lot of frustration there, isn't there? Absolutely. The disillusionment on the right is not ideological, but highly focused and personal. It's not just about Netanyahu, but also about many of the ministers he appointed. And it seems like both sides are facing a deep frustration. On the right, it's tactical and personal. On the left, the frustration runs much deeper. Right, Abby. And it's important to note that we haven't even explored the potential impact on second-tier sectors such as the ultra-Orthodox or the Arab sector. True. And if elections are held soon, their outcomes are likely to mirror the emerging trends seen in polls. This includes the complete disappearance of the classic left and a more significant political shift. The permanent end to Netanyahu's public career. It's a lot to process. Indeed, Michael. And predicting the future of Israel's political and social landscape is exceedingly challenging. It might become more right-wing, more Jewish, internally cohesive, and more isolationist on the global stage, all while simultaneously opening up to various internal currents that have collectively fought for change. But how these shifts will manifest, particularly when American pressure calls for the revival of policy initiatives, remains an elusive puzzle. 
From the complex political landscape of Israel, we now turn our attention to the United Kingdom. It seems that the issue of government and its handling of certain matters is not unique to one country. This time, the focus is on a different kind of power play, one that concerns the very essence of democracy, human rights. Let's delve into this pressing issue. So, Abby, we have a serious topic on our hands today. Yasmin Ahmed, the UK Director of Human Rights Watch, has expressed some grave concerns about the British government's handling of human rights. That's right, Michael. And it's not just a concern. It's a warning. She fears that the government's aggressive politicization of human rights could cause irrevocable damage to democracy. And it's not just about a single policy. It's a pattern. She cites the government's move to disapply the Human Rights Act to an emergency bill about asylum seekers as an example. This is despite the Supreme Court ruling against the policy. Exactly. It's this blatant disregard for the judiciary and human rights institutions that's alarming. Ahmed points out that previous governments at least tried to appear as if they were complying with domestic or international human rights law. But now, it seems to be the opposite. And it's not just about ignoring existing laws. It's also about creating new ones that serve the current political agenda. This could lead us down a dangerous path towards authoritarianism, according to Ahmed. Yes, and it's not just talk. The government has been taking tangible actions that undermine human rights, from launching an open attack on the right, to peacefully demonstrate to giving the police unprecedented powers over citizens. It's a worrying trend. And it's not just about the impact on the UK. Ahmed warns that this approach could discredit the UK's ability to hold other human rights violators to account internationally. It's a model of governance that puts political ideology over legal obligations. And the consequences could be long-lasting. Once these laws and frameworks are discredited and torn apart, it could be almost impossible to put them back together. This isn't just about the rights of vulnerable or controversial groups. It's about the rights of everyone. That's a sobering thought. Any of us may need to exercise our rights or hold the state to account at any time. But if the government continues down this path, we might find that we've lost the power to do so. And it's not just about the here and now. It's about the precedent it sets for the future. If the government can undermine the judiciary and human rights laws now, what's to stop it from doing so again in the future? It's a slippery slope, Michael. It certainly is, Abby. It's a conversation that we need to keep having to ensure that human rights remain at the forefront of our democratic institutions. Because once they're gone, it might be too late to bring them back. Exactly, Michael. It's a sobering reminder of the importance of vigilance in protecting our rights and freedoms.